You are listening to Scale Your Joy with Kanisha Grayson, Episode 17. Welcome to Scale Your Joy, the only podcast that teaches high achievers with heart how to craft a life and build a business focused on freedom, joy, self-expression, and social impact. I'm your host, Kanisha Grayson, a Harvard Business School and Harvard Kennedy School grad, author, essayist, and self-made entrepreneur. I did it and you can do it too. Let's get started. Hello, hello. Today, I'm really excited about the interview I have to share with you. It's an interview with someone who I adore. His name is Alexei. And Alexei and I met through a mutual friend named Camille. And she was Alexei's boss. And she is the wife of one of my very good friends from college. And when I was looking for a salesperson to join my team at The Art of Applying as a breakthrough coach, she reached out to me and said, I have someone that I think would be great for you. I think you should give him a chance. His application is coming through. And he submitted an amazing application. I was actually out of office for a surgery when my team actually took him through the hiring process and brought him on the team. He spent a year at the art of applying as a breakthrough coach over that year. We got to know each other really well. And he um, was wildly successful in his year with the company. This is his first time selling anything. I trained him in our process for speaking to people about their graduate school goals and dreams. And Alexei made over $300,000 in just one year in sales for my company, The Art of Applying. I'm so proud of him. He is super creative, super accomplished, has so much insight and encouragement to share with creative people who are trying to balance being creative with earning money, and then also lots of things to share with business people who are curious about living a more creative life. And so I really hope you enjoy this episode with Alexei and I, and just know that anything that we mentioned in this episode, including Alexei's website, you can find out more information at scaleyourjoy.com slash 17. All right, let's get to it. Hello. Hi, Alexei. Hi, Kanisha. How's it going? Very good. So nice to connect with you on a Sunday. I think this is our first time ever talking on a weekend. Probably, except for sometimes when I have like an emergency breakthrough call question, I'd be like, Kanisha, I'm sorry, it's Sunday, but I have a question. So yeah. It's a relaxed Sunday chat. <laughs> yes, a relaxed Sunday chat. Well, I'm really excited to talk with you today. First, I just want you to tell us about your educational background and where you're headed for grad school. Because by the time this episode airs, you will actually already be there. And I'm so excited for you. Yeah, on that note, after this call, I'm going to probably have to go and start packing. I'm a chronic last minute packer, but also I'm going to Oxford from uh, Texas. So it's going to require a lot of packing so as you get started. But on that note, uh, in terms of my educational background, I went to Cornell University, where I majored in industrial and labor relations. It's this little odd combo. I think um, the acronym is ILR. And I remember when I first got accepted, I told people, I was like, I'm going to do international legal relations because even I got those acronyms mixed up. But I did stumble into industrial labor relations, loved it, combined everything that I wanted to do in regards to human rights in terms of like, as from a company perspective, like how can we make things more equitable for employees? So it was a really great major, loved my time at Cornell. Um, but when I graduated, my advisor told me that I actually 
ended up taking more theater classes and I actually ended up for my actual major. (laughs) So um, if we were allowed to double major, then I probably would have received one, but I got a nice blanket out of it. So that's all I needed. But essentially (laughs) that's what I did at Cornell was that major and theater directing a lot of plays Um, for people listening. They can't see, but all of those are little posters of shows. I Tell us all the plays. Ooh, okay. Let's see. So the first one was uh, the 10-Minute Play Festival. That was kind of like, I would say like the actual, actual directing debut because we did a little 24-hour play festival beforehand, but that's just when you have um, 24 hours for someone to write a script, get it directed, the actors memorize their lines, and then you create it. There's so oh, much fun. Cool. But uh, 10-Minute Play Festival was um, people would write 10-Minute Plays, and then the group of directors would direct them. And I remember being a freshman, and back then that was pretty rare to be able to do that. So that was really great. And then other shows, The Vagina Monologues, I think that was my most proud show that I got to do is about a team of like maybe around 60 people in terms of like 50 actresses and then 10 people in the creative uh, side of things. That was really exciting. We raised over $10,000 to help uh, survivors of sexual assault in the uh, Ithaca area for the, uh, there was a local Ithaca advocacy. Uh, I forget the full title of it, but a women's resource center in Ithaca. What are some other shows? Ooh, Macbeth. That is my favorite Shakespeare play. And it was so much fun because we did it in Halloween. So it was like a Halloween Shakespeare. Uh, so cool. I just wanted to be super camp, super just like <laughs> we would have like literal bathtubs of blood and water guns of blood. So like when people would die, like literally you'd be everyone was wearing ponchos, too. So like a very immersive, super interactive. And it just so happened to fall on Parents Weekend and then Cornell. Oh, how fun. To, yeah. <laughs> and then this is the funny part, though. Like Cornell decided to advertise it on their main Cornell like Facebook page, like not like a little side events one. Like it was the main one. They were like, parents, are you looking for something to do? Go see Macbeth. Because I think they were expecting a real traditional Shakespearean production. And there were people walking in with their like Burberry coats and their super nice things. I was like, please, may I take your coat? It's like, no, no, no. You know, this is like, they were being very polite, but of course, because they knew the value of their coat, they didn't want someone to take it. Right. So I was like, no, 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 trust me. I also know the value of your coat and you want me to check this in because it's going to be covered in blood. And I remember being so nervous that they were going to be like, oh my God, these are all these people who expect like snooty Shakespeare and like a very classical, but I was exploring themes of gender in that production because I think Macbeth is like Shakespeare's most explorative work of gender roles, you know, with like Lady Macbeth being this like quote unquote, taking like really the male authority of their relationship versus Macbeth kind of being subservient to the wife. And especially for that time, like just exploring those themes was so interesting. And I kind of wanted to do it even further. So I had a drag queen playing Lady Macbeth and a drag king playing. uh, Yeah. So, and then it was all gender swapped and I was just nervous that they were not going to respond to it really well, but we sold out every event. We had a line. I would say how exciting. Yeah. We've never actually talked about like my theater theater. So this is so fun to, and it's like, I'm trying to re-remember all this now because it's been so many years. I really have to dive back into theater and directing and all of that because after graduation, it's been kind of hard to keep all of that going, but yeah. And then of course I have some other plays I can go on all day. I'll, I'll be really quick with the other two. Uh, that was, I won first place for a, a playwriting contest about, um, um, and that was when Trump got elected and I just had to like feel my feelings in terms of writing. So I wrote a play about um, an undocumented woman's experience using the structure of Anne Frank's uh, The Diary. So, but for oh. 2016 and the scary thing was like half the things that I thought were going to happen ended up actually happening. For oh, interesting. So that was a little scary. <laughs> and then the last one was the Baltimore Waltz. That was my 
thesis, if you will. As I mentioned, I wasn't an actual student, but mm-hmm. Cornell let me direct a final play. And that was about um, Paula Vogel. She's an alum and she's also a Pulitzer winner. And she wrote this one play after her brother unfortunately passed away of AIDS during the AIDS crisis. So I did that play, raised some money for HIV testing at Cornell, but that was my summary of my wall. And you're the first person to ask <laughs> about my wall. So I really appreciate getting to. Yes, talk about. that is so amazing. I've been seeing that wall for a year now. And I was thinking it was more just decoration. And to know that it's your wall of creative accomplishments and pride is really lovely. That was awesome. Uh, Alexei, have you heard of the play Sleep No More, the production? I have actually. So when I was directing Macbeth, people were telling me about that and I never had the opportunity to go see it, but it is like top of my list. If I'm ever in New York City, like I have to, because I've been, everyone's been like, it's like, oh, that is your type of theater. And I'm like, I know, I know I have to find a way to go see it. But yes, it's on the top of my list. (laughs) It's absolutely your type of theater. I went and saw it when I was at Harvard. It went to Boston to see it and it was super weird, avant-garde, but I think you would love it. Yeah. Okay. So we know uh, a little bit about your amazing theater, creative accomplishments. Tell us where you grew up. Tell us how you grew up. Yeah, so I was actually born in Norway. So my mom's from Mexico City and my dad's from Norway. That is a whole other podcast episode, but it's a very romantic story. They essentially met at Epcot because uh, Norway and Mexico are right next to each other in Epcot. So basically the only place in the world where those two countries are together. And Were they working there or tourists? (laughs) Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll sum it. I guess I have too many stories, but um, my mom, she was like tired of just like, you know, uh, being like a Mexican society where all she could be is like a woman or a wife. And she's like, no, I'm going to make a life for myself. I'm going to the US. Um, so she got a job uh, with Epcot because they directly, at least at the time, I think they still do, but directly only recruit people actually living from those countries or citizens oh, of those countries cool. for each center. Yeah, to like make it really authentic. Because when you're in Epcot, like when you're in the Mexico section, I mean, that is like, they really strive for like that 100% authentic experience. My dad on the other side, I love his story because he was just like, you know what? Like Norway's cold. Let's go to Florida. <laughs> like he like literally Googled what is like the warmest place that I could study engineering. So he went to, he was like, Florida, they have beaches. That sounds great. It's not cold. Let's do that. And their roommates were dating. So the roommates introduced them to each other. So basically <laughs> I'm not like a huge Disney nerd, but Disney's literally why I exist. So Aww. that's kind of funny to think about. But yeah, so I am a Mexican-Norwegian, which is an interesting combination of cultures. I love it. And I think that's really why I kind of like, I'm a real two sides of a situation kind of person, because I literally, that's how I was raised, having these two really polar opposite type cultures and just how they were able to create a family together, right, with those different perspectives. And then I also was raised in the United States. So that was a third little interesting aspect to it. And then I continue to love to talk to people of different cultures and different backgrounds to get even a bigger perspective of life. But yeah, that's a little bit of the Alexei origin story in terms of geographically. (laughs) Okay, I love it. So uh, where'd you grow up and how'd you grow up? Yeah, so um, after um, my family, we first moved to California for a couple of years, but like fourth grade was like when I really, really like, I feel like established my roots. That was fourth grade. It was in Texas, Austin, Texas, where we're both from. So yeah, I, I think once you've lived a decade anywhere, I think you're allowed to call yourself a uh, blank or whatever that is. So I think I can still say I'm a Texan and I still say y'all and howdy and everything. And it's funny because when I first went to um, 
Cornell, I felt like I had to like abandon my y'alls and my howdies to seem professional and businessy. But now I'm like, you know what? No, it is such a more convenient word. Y'all is like the easiest word to use. Yes. I can't even say you all. Like it just like it's, it's too inefficient. Much. And I know there's a way to say y'all or something like where it's y'all and then should have and then it's all one. That's a little oh, yeah. for me. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Austin, Texas. And yeah, I think one thing that I forgot to mention was that um, being Mexican Norwegian and also having to learn English for the move, like made language super difficult for me. I couldn't talk until I was actually four years old, um, which is surprising to anyone listening to this and hearing how chatty I am. But the first four years of my life were pretty just like not talking, just making sounds, which is kind of back to like the theater and like why I really love like more like immersive and visual things. Cause I love to kind of create art that you can understand without needing a textual context for it. It's more of like a visual medium for me, mm-hmm. but um, that also kind of relates to when I was in Texas and I moved there, I was really struggling with like making friends and acclimating to like the Texan culture and all those things. And just having a really difficult time in school. I used to actually hate school because, you know, it was just really frustrating for me. I was bad at it. I wasn't making friends. I wasn't talking. And, you know, there's also like, we can go on about, and I would, if, if you want to expand on your own experiences, like being a person of color in Austin and like a primarily white school and things like that, like as a fourth grade child, that was kind of difficult for me and like kind of mm-hmm. grappling with all of that. And also, you know, being away from my family, you know, no one from Mexico or Norway. Right. So long story short, it was a, <laughs> the beginning sad, lonely kid in Texas until I had an incredible fifth grade teacher named Miss Higley. She uh, introduced me to like her after school theater program with another teacher named Mr. Cardness. And like, even though I was this shy kid, they knew theater could be that tool that gets me out of my shell, makes me have friends. And ever since it's been history, then I started going into really in depth into theater, loved it. Because of that, it made me more excited to go to school, made me more excited to do my homework. And then that literally is what got me all the way to Cornell was just that first theater class. So um, I can't advocate enough for after school arts programs. Like I wish every school had that opportunity. Like if I never had that, not to mention, I'm sure those teachers weren't <laughs> getting extra money for that. You know, that's something they did on yeah. their own because they wanted to do it. So yeah, um, that's a little bit about more of the origin story. Another layer of the onion just peeling back. <laughs> Alex, I- what grade was it when everything turned around for you when you were just like hating school, but then you discovered theater? Yeah. So it had to, I think like fourth grade was just a really, really rough year, but fifth year was when I was actually introduced for it. So it was kind of one year difficulty. And then the fifth year was when really everything changed for me. Mm, Okay. Fifth grade formative time. Okay. (laughs) So you've already told us about how you are uh, Norwegian and Mexican I would be interested to know, how has your culture influenced the way you pursue your career goals and your dreams for your life? Ooh, I think that's a good question. I think, um, and it's not even something that I really reflected until college and even a little bit more after college when I started learning kind of like what script development was and how like the whole something goes from a script to actually being something you see on screen or on stages this idea that like, oh, you know what? Actually, a lot of those lonely years would have been a lot less lonely if I saw people who looked like me mm-hmm. on my screens, right? Like, you know, I had Junie from Spy Kids and I had Dora's cousin, uh, I can't even remember, Diego, Diego. Those are like my two like Mexican mm-hmm. boys that I can look at in a TV and be like, oh, okay, like I- I'm not alone, right? And I guess when it comes to like how my own culture has facilitated my own career goals or even in my theater that I was directing at Cornell was always just wanting to strive to 
putting those stories, those untold stories onto the stage. And now the reason why I want to get an MBA is because I loved my experience in theater. I'm never going to give it up. And I actually kind of want to continue having that as a side part of my life and even maybe being on a board of theaters. But as far as like how to maximize that impact, I really see going to grad school, getting an MBA, and then being able to do that for a digital streaming service like a Netflix or a Hulu. I mean, that could reach millions of people. And they're already doing such a great job on terms of what you see on camera. You know, now you can actually see so many different types of people on camera. And that makes me so excited. And I can only imagine how like meaningful that would have been for me when I was a kid. However, we haven't gotten there when it comes to behind the cameras, right? Like when it comes to the executives, the screenwriters, the directors, those are still all primarily, you know, white men. And I just really want to be able to kind of more use my platform to be able to kind of make it equally as representative behind the scenes. So I suppose, you know, had I not been raised with all those different perspectives and myself being a minority, perhaps I wouldn't have had that hustle or that awareness or goal to make that a reality. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. I remember growing up watching like Nickelodeon always, you know, being like, okay, there's like the black sidekick friend there. They were never the main character. You know, it was just like, say by the bell. Okay. I'm Lisa, you know, yeah. and just, there's a lot more representation now, like you said, mm-hmm. in on shows, but we want the decision makers also to be diverse as well. So I love that that is a part of your path. So I've already said in the introduction that you are on your way out as being a breakthrough coach at The Art of Applying. So what does that mean? What's a breakthrough coach? What have you been doing at my company? Yeah. So a breakthrough coach is like the very first person you talk with at The Art of Applying, right? So in terms of our process, you first have a 15-minute quick call where we just do a real quick check-in just to make sure like, what are your goals? Who are you? Who are we? And then if we think we can work together, we'll have a 90 minute breakthrough call where we're going to really go in depth just to make crystal clear that we can help you. What are your specific goals? What are your specific challenges? And how has the art of applying actually helped people through those exact same challenges? And what is our system? What is our coaching model? And then once we're 100% confident that it's a mutual benefit for both of us, we enroll you, we get you get you into a consultant and the whole art of applying system. So my role really is that kind of beginning step as a breakthrough coach, talking to those clients, getting to know their story, which again, the reoccurring theme of my life is stories, right? I love just yes. listening to people, knowing their story and specifically like, because you know the art of applying, like when you go on our team page and even sometimes like when I'm feeling lonely. I just go on our team and I just scroll and see all the beautiful people of color. And we just so much diversity and representation in our team that it naturally gravitates at the people who come to me to have these calls are also, you know, people of color, minorities, first generation folks, and they all kind of gravitate to us and our team and our story because of that. So I get to listen to their struggles or challenges, everything. And I just really just enjoy getting to be that real first step. Like sometimes I had a quick call with someone who was like, Thank you for creating this space. This is the first time I've ever like even mentioned these challenges I had in college. And it just really means a lot to be able to like get to hear that and then just get them the help that they need and deserve to be able to get into those dream schools. Oh, absolutely. That was so beautifully said. I'm going to have in the future people who are applying to join our team as breakthrough coaches. I'm definitely going to have them watch your client case study video, and then also uh, listen to this interview because that was a really beautiful way to put it. So what did you think this job would be like and what was it actually like? I think when I first kind of got the job, I was really, and it's and we've had some conversations about how you were saying like, okay, Alex, you can ask questions or don't be afraid to make suggestions or things like that. Because at the beginning, I felt like 
oh, I don't have an MBA. I don't have a graduate degree. I am like really unqualified because I don't, you know, I don't know things like, you know, what GMAT you need for this or what is the GRE versus the GMAT. And I just felt so like underprepared because I was like, oh, I can't consult these people. But then I really kind of embraced the idea that like, I'm not the consultant. I am the breakthrough coach. I am here to really fully understand everything about you that that way we can collect that information. And then we can figure out who is going to be that best person for you to be able to like overcome those goals and those challenges. So I think I was expecting to jump into this role where I was going to have to like compensate for the fact that, you know, I wasn't this MBA person or things like that. And the truth was, it's actually, that's not what it was. Like the skills that I needed was that listening, the being able to fully capture their story and their goals and just be the spokesperson for the art of applying. Because again, you know, we speak to anyone who's interested, like that's all big volume of people. So that's my job is to do that, right? As opposed to, you know, although some people wish, you know, if one consultant had to talk to, you know, 10 people a week, and then, you know, those people ultimately didn't enroll, like that's less time that they can actually spend working with their clients. That's really why this is a very specific need. And, you know, in terms of anyone listening who has their own companies or things, like it's really important to kind of have those in different categories so someone can become an expert in what they're doing. So I really do feel like I've develop that expertise for what a breakthrough coach needs to do. And that's something that I didn't need an MBA for. I now am going to get one <laughs> thanks to the art of applying because I, I guess I was such a good breakthrough coach. I enrolled myself, but um, yeah. So I think that's something that surprised me about the role. Yeah. And so what advice would you give to someone who's they're creative, they're artsy, smartsy, and they think like, I could never be great at sales. Like, especially not selling like expensive coaching and consulting. What makes you such a great breakthrough coach? I know you've already kind of answered some of that. Well, actually, just to expand on it, I was actually talking to my roommate from LA. He's awesome. And he was a theater major in college. And now he's working in a customer relations type role within a startup company. And I was just talking to him. I was like, you know what? Like, we as theater people, we're doing really good in these business settings, right? And I feel like people don't give us enough credit because they see theater major on your resume and they just assume all of these different stereotypes about like, oh, you're just not academically rigorous or like you're not going to be able to succeed in a company. And I would actually challenge that. I think the majority of like both entry level and then even when you get into executive level roles is about your communications, your ability to lead, your ability to have these conversations. I mean, especially with sales, I mean, it's almost entirely like your ability to really have these like authentic conversations with people. And I would almost say if you are artsy and creative, then you're actually going to be even better in these types of roles or even be a better leader in organizations. I think that's also why you have been such a great boss and we've had such a good uh, working relationship because you yourself are creative. And I think creative people are just able to kind of like bring that extra level. And I've been currently uh, training my uh, replacement as I leave. And it's been such a great time to just talk and reflect. And I've noticed that as I'm developing him to like being able to kind of do sales the way I was doing it, my notes were actually, I felt like I was a director again. Like it was this idea of like, okay, when you're working on this tone, like, like you need to kind of more capture this or being able to kind of like, it was literally directing an actor, which was really interesting. And I wasn't expecting it where, I mean, just the other day we were talking and like, he was talking about his role and what he does and like all the millions. And then like, I was just like, oh my gosh, you're like, you're incredible. And like, that's such an incredible skill. But I actually, without an MBA, like I'm able to bring value to you by teaching you these more like soft skills, these communication skills, like how I can listen to somebody and reflect their tone when I recap their story, right? Like that's acting, that's improv, that's 101, right? Like 
And all of these things that I just assumed were like things that I just did because I like theater were actually good business skills to have. And Cornell has um, one theater course exclusively for business types people. I can't remember what the name of the course was, but like, oh my goodness, I think every MBA program, every business major, like they need to take an intro to acting or they need to take like a speech class because like those skills, like I think that's going to be like what can make the difference between you kind of staying in your role and being the person who gets promoted or the person who is the top salesperson in the company. Those are the skills that you need to develop. And as much as I love an accounting class, that's a side, Kenesha, and I know both, I hate accounting. So that's a joke. But the point is like, uh, those are good quantitative courses to have. But I really want to encourage people who are artsy or creative or scared to start their own business or scared to jump into sales or scared to ask for like a big price tag for their services. Like, no, you have those skills and just like recognize that those are just as valuable as the quantitative skills of other people. And don't be intimidated by that. Oh, beautiful. Um, I love that. One thing that occurs to me is that people in the creative industries, particularly actors, um, people in theater, you all have to have a really deep level of empathy and being able to relate really well to others, right? Relate well to your character, relate well to how your character would react to other characters, relate well to the audience. So you have to actually be able to have these different layers of consciousness. You are yourself, but you're also the character you're playing, but you're also needing to be the other characters reacting to your character. And you need to keep in mind the audience. How is the audience receiving all of this? Uh, And that to me is super helpful because when I'm Back in the day when I was doing calls, I had to be like, okay, what did this person just say? How are they feeling? How am I feeling hearing what they say? Uh, If there's parents on the call, how are they processing this information? What might they be feeling right now or wondering? So there's all these little characters you have to keep in mind. Um, So yeah, I'm I'm not uh, very experienced in the theater or anything like that, but you know, I'm a creative type person uh, who easily could have gone that route. And so, yeah, when I hear you talking, I'm like, one thing I think theater people have that serves them really well in a a day job that is like sales or enrolling people into a course is that empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And the only other thing I would add is also an endurance, like creative artsy type people are high endurance folks. Like I even remember like before this podcast, I myself was feeling a little tired and it's kind of this idea of like, okay, take a deep breath. Not to mention this is completely full of Red Bull. So that helps. But uh, uh, just this idea of like, okay, like this is your moment. You have to be on, you have to be able to like do your job. And it's funny because those breakthrough calls, they're 90 minutes long. You know, sometimes like you can almost exhaust yourself if you're not really hyper engaged in that conversation and really loving the job and listening to the story and like just wanting to relay that story back to people. So I also think that's one good strength. So back to your question about people who are artsy, don't let that stop you. (laughs) Like go for it. That's my biggest takeaway. I love that. And a question that I have for you that I didn't send ahead of time, but that's just occurring to me now is like, what advice would you have for someone who's in their twenties or their thirties or forties or even fifties? Who's like, wow, this sounds super cool. I want to explore my creative side the actor inside, but maybe it's too late. Maybe I'm too old. Where does someone start if they want to explore being a creative person, whether they want to be um, on the stage as an actor um, or they want to maybe be on the page as a screenwriter? Mm -hmm. Ooh, good one. Good one. And 
I think, I mean, I, I could probably go off on a giant list of people who had their careers later in life. I know Oprah had like so many rejections before she got her uh, career. And I know um, the one that always resonates with me for some reason is the guy who plays Phil Dunphy, the dad in Modern Family. I'm pretty sure that was his very first like on-screen job. Like like he just decided wow. he was going to be an actor and he did that. I can't remember his exact story, but beyond just kind of those, like, because even when people hear those stories are like, okay, well, that was Oprah. Like, of course she was going to be able to make it, which I would challenge you. Like it's, it's still, it was a ton of work to be able to get to where she was. And she had a lot of scaredness. Like it, she, she became the woman that now everyone thinks is unbeatable, right. but there was a point where she was someone getting fired. So still, you can still be inspired by people like that. But in terms of a more practical way to do it, I am such, such, such an advocate for community theater. And I always tell people that all the time, like people who you know, of course, maybe maybe you would be one of those lucky people who just gets that leading role in a TV series your first time. But more practically, like there are so many little theaters across the U.S. You don't have to be living in L.A. or New York City. In fact, I almost always tell people who are fresh actors, like, actually, you should be living in like Atlanta, Chicago, like a city that is still big but still actually has a place for you in it. And it's not super developed, super Broadway or like the biggest Hollywood film busters, if that's the phrase. But mm -hmm. anyway, this idea of like starting small, locally community, building like a rapport with different directors, casting agents, showing up on time. And by time, I mean 15 minutes early because you always want to be early to establish like this is someone dependable. And so much of the entertainment industry is just like, can I rely on you? Like, of course, mm -hmm. it's good to also be talented and all of that, which comes with practice and practice. But like, if someone knows you're going to be on time, be it being on time in a writer's room, if you want to be a writer or being on time on set as an actor or as a makeup artist, whatever it might be, like showing up there, being on time and starting small, that is my biggest piece of advice. Because I think if you go from a top approach, trying to get immediately there, um, it can become really frustrating when you don't get there and also really expensive to live in one of these major cities. So I just think trying to find a way to balance whatever is your main hustle with either community theater or short student films, if you're more interested on being on camera or just like meeting with a bunch of collaborators and then being able to kind of create like a short project. If you want to be a writer, like I always just think don't underestimate the power of like starting locally within your community and finding other people who are equally trying to figure out how to get it all started and just relying on those other people to be your cheerleaders, your support system. And that's what I would recommend for them. I'm also kind of still in the very beginning. So I need to re-listen to this podcast and remind myself like, okay, yeah, you have to do that because it's so much easier said than done. It is a lot of work, but like, that's what's going to get you there, right? It's about like consistently being there and giving them your 100% every time. So I think that would be the advice I would give someone any stage of their life who wants to start being creative is like, start doing it, right? Like it's the, it's the starting that's the hardest part. Same with graduate school applications, same with working out, literally everything in life, the hardest part is just the getting started and continuing to follow through on that every single day. Mm, I love it. And so I mentioned the term day job earlier, and you just used the word hustle. Hmm. Um, my understanding is that in your deepest heart, you're a creative person who's also business savvy, and that your role at the Art of Applying as a Breakthrough Coach was your day job. That was the way for you to make money. And it just also happened to be fulfilling and fun. And you had an amazing, beautiful boss. But <laughs> talk to all of us about how you balanced having a day job with your creative pursuits 
with wanting to do well as a breakthrough coach and you were the top performing salesperson in the company, how did you balance that with your creative pursuits? How did you not lose sight of your vision? What is your vision and how did you stay faithful to that vision while still having a a job? Oh, that's such a good question. And I think part of the reason why I also mentioned this idea of living like, I mean, of course, you know, Atlanta and Chicago, they're not cheap cities by any means, but I mean, you can at least get a studio for the price of a closet in New York City that's covered in roaches. I, I've lived in an apartment with roaches. I know the hustle. I know the struggle. But the, the idea of, you're so right, like you have to find a way to be able to balance it. And I think sometimes people, when they move to a big city, and I even myself, I, I part of my hustle and my challenge in Los Angeles was I was like, I am spending all of my time just making the money to be able to like pay for my expenses. And I'm not going to the community theaters to like, try to write a play and get it produced, or I'm not meeting up with people to, you know, kind of like make a short film. And the ironic part was 2020 was going to be my year. I finally like signed up for an orange theory. I was working out. I was taking classes at UCLA. I was finally ready to like actually do the work in addition. Cause I finally found the balance. It takes a long time to figure out like how to have your job paying your bills and then also being an artist. So I was finally there. And then a little thing called COVID-19 hit and that kind of turned everything backwards. But the good news was then I was able to now get my MBA. And I feel like I am at that place that I recognize how to have that balance. And it's just about allocating the time to actually do it in a way that works for you. Like, I think I was a type of person that I realized if I put on my calendar that from this time I need to write, it doesn't get done. And I feel really guilty that I didn't do it. Like, like, oh, you didn't spend your two hours this time in the morning actually doing something creative. Like now you're feeling guilty and then you spiral and then you end up not ever doing it. And I wonder if that resonates with anybody else's idea of like, when you're so hard on yourself about making this balance, like you end up not doing anything. So I guess my biggest piece of advice for me personally, like when I was balancing like the art of applying was like, just taking those times where I do have that spewer of creativity and just just writing and like allocating that time just to write and just to enjoy it. And I was able to get into the second round for a, uh, a play that I wrote with the Austin Film Festival while working at The Art of Applying. So it was just about kind of like writing when I felt like I wanted to write. But in terms of like that advice, ugh, it's even difficult for me. So I don't know the right answer mm-hmm. to tell people. I don't know, like, I mean... You've written a book. I mean, yeah, I, would love I will share my story, but I feel like my story could end up more as a cautionary tale. So mm-hmm. um, I will still tell it though. So when I was, well, when let's see, growing up my whole life, I only wanted to be a teacher and a writer. And it was more a writer, but I also knew like grownups have jobs. I'm not <laughs> sure if a writer's a job, but teacher's a job. So that's all I ever wanted to be. I remember my third grade teacher told me, Kanisha, you're going to make a great lawyer one day. And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> so that is all I ever wanted to be. In college, I did not uh, major in creative writing. I majored in Black studies, but I took a lot of like the combination of Black studies, literature classes, art, film, and also studied creative writing with David Foster Wallace, one of the most celebrated authors, American authors in history. And um, I actually wrote a short story in his class that I won a a cash award for in college. So like, I was like, okay, I like to be a writer, but I didn't have, I'm not sure where things kind of went off that path for me. I think part of it is I didn't have any like role models. Mm -hmm. I had role models of like professors who wrote like, 
textbooks or whatever, or like scholarly stuff, but I didn't really have any role models for like, how do you like make it or like live life as a writer? Also, I'm good at a lot of stuff. So I was like good at all my classes, you know, the classes I chose to take. I hightailed it out of uh, astronomy. I remember being like, I'll learn about the stars and was in there for like two weeks. And was like, my spatial reasoning is not like strong enough to understand how any of this works and get me out of here. But I was helping friends for free with their grad school applications and saw how good I was at that. And was like, well, let me get myself into grad school. There's other reasons why I wanted to go. I was super interested by social entrepreneurship. But the, the reason I mentioned grad school is that while it was so exciting to get into Harvard, I ended up with 130K in student loans, which became 150K just with the interest. And then when I was at Harvard, I started to realize like, oh, I kind of like just want to be a writer. (laughs) Like That would be great. But now I've got these student loans. And so then I was like, well, corporate America, I've tried it. I tried it two summers. And for both my two summer internships, I was able to have since I was in school for three years and was like, that's not for me. They weren't creative industries. They were, I guess you can maybe creative adjacent. They were like, well, one was marketing, but I was like, well, I'm going to need to figure out a way to pay back these student loans and to have time to write. So I was like, well, I'll work for myself. I'll start this company. And I've had the art of applying for 11 years. And my first year's revenue goal was casually to make a million dollars. Like I just was like, I'll just somehow make a million dollars my first year. I made like $30,000 maybe (laughs) first year. And that's funny, right? Because like $30,000 for you is like how much you make for the company in like a week, right? So that's, (laughs) that's how much I made in my first year. And I bring that up to say that the reason I started the art of applying, the reason we even know each other is because I was like, well, I've gone to grad school. I'm proud of my degrees, but shoot, I've got a lot of student loan debt. I want to be a writer. I also wanted to be an on-air hostess. So I wanted to be kind of an Oprah type figure. I don't know if you know this, Alex, but I like moved to LA. I like auditioned with Oprah Winfrey Network and like made it past the like everybody round to like a we like you round, but I didn't make it much further. It was a competition to have Mm -hmm. a show on Oprah Winfrey Networks. But Anyway, so I wanted to be an on-air hostess, like a talk show hostess plus a writer. So I needed time. I needed flexibility. Started this company. But what I didn't fully process is that like starting a company is a lot of work and it's most companies fail and it's really hard. And so I would say it kind of how you were saying when you move to a really big city, you actually put a lot more burden on yourself financially to where now you don't have much time and energy to work on your creativity. That's kind of, I feel what happened to me for at least the first eight years of the business is I was so like, oh my goodness, I need money. I was so financially stressed um, to get the business up and running that like I barely had any time to focus on writing and whatever. And it actually has been eight years since I wrote my first book. And I was able to write that book and have ability to focus on it because I was living for free in Mm. my friend's house that I met on LinkedIn, (laughs) which sounds crazy. But like we met on LinkedIn a year later, I'm living in her house because she had a huge house and I could stay there for free. So anyway, all that is to say is that it is 11 years later. And now I feel like I have a steady six figure income, a business that runs smoothly, a lot of free time. and definitely have enough time to write a book. Um, 
I will finish my sec the first draft of my second book by the end of this year, actually. So that's news to you, news to everybody listening on the podcast. Um, I have a title, I have a concept. Um, so yeah, so I'll be done by with the first draft by the end of the year. So I'm very excited about that. But all that is to say is I took a really long way to get here. And there's one does not need to go on that long journey. Writing is the cheapest creative <laughs> endeavor you could possibly have. It's cheaper even than liking to cook or bake. All you need is paper and a pen or pencil. So what is expensive about writing is energy, time, attention, and consistency and stillness. And so um, I don't want people to think that like, oh, I need to start my own business and then wait 11 years and then I'll be able to write. Like, no, do that simple thing now. And sometimes the simplest thing is the hardest thing, which for me was being still. I mentioned in a different episode that I have moved every 12 to 24 months for the last 19 years. To me, that is not a a good environment to foster creativity necessarily, even if you're traveling and being filled with inspiration because you're so stressed out all the time. Yeah, I'm also a a chronic mover. I moved from uh, upstate New York to DC, then LA, then back to Texas. And now I'm going to hopefully establish my roots roots in England. But I think the biggest takeaways that I just got from what you said, the first one was this idea of mentorship. And especially it's so much harder for people of color to find mentors who resonate with them because of that that scarcity that is within those creative fields. So I think what I, in terms of like the advice that I would give other people, and I honestly, please make a podcast episode for this so I can get some advice on it myself, but like, how do you find your mentor, right? Because yeah. I think having someone who can give you that practical advice that you mentioned, like wanting to know the technical, like the, how do I get this short story published? Or how do I even manage like like my career with my creative pursuits, because I hope one day that I can be someone who can give back and mentor others once I've kind of figured out my own life and I have like the career that I wanted and I can help people not make the same mistakes I did or not even necessarily mistakes, but just things that I could have been a little quicker. And the second thing that I took away from that was this idea of like the creative adjacent career. And I really want to advocate for that idea because I feel like a lot of times people think that if you're not 100% committed to a creative lifestyle, like you're not a real artist or like you're just like putting in the side or this idea like it has to be plan A or nothing else. And I just feel like that's just like, I don't know the right word for it, but it's almost kind of like this idea of like, I think because other people had to go through all these trials and tribulations, they feel like the next generation has to do it too. So Mm -hmm. this idea of being able to actually have a career that you enjoy and being an artist, like that can be a great thing. And I think one thing that's really interesting is that I'm speaking right now to you, a huge entrepreneur and a successful entrepreneur. And this idea that you can have something that is creative, that you created your own self that does good to the world and makes you happy. And for me, I actually want to do that, but within an established company, like the idea of having this creative adjacent career, it's actually much more creative creative than it is adjacent, but yeah, yeah. development, it's still like a career where I'm not the one writing the script, right? Like, so I'm not the one directly creating it but I at least get to be in the room where it happens as you will. Um, and being able to read those scripts, being able to advocate for people and also getting health insurance. That's really nice. Right. So like that to me, like I'm really excited and I would always encourage people to try to find like, what can you do in your actual day-to-day life as a career that makes you still feel fulfilled? Because at the end of the day, if life is about maximizing your joy, which I think, and that's the reason why when you 
uh, told me about Skill Your Joy, I was like, sign me up. I want to give you feedback. But there is a way to being able to enjoy your career and then not feel like you just mentioned, like you're like, it's been eight years. and But now I'm finally at this place where I get to do my first draft. It's going to be done in a year. That's fantastic. And I think it's about this idea of not allowing ourselves to beat ourselves up because we haven't been able to, like I could have beat myself up to be like, oh, you had a year in the pandemic. You should have written like a feature film. Like you should have done that. You had the time. And but if I beat myself up, I'm never going to write it. Right. So this idea of like, mm. now I can finally be like, okay, like, you know, the pandemic is finally over. You're moving to your dream country. Like maybe take like a weekend getaway to some, I don't know, cow pasture in England and write a little bit, like just being like joyous and allowing yourself to like forgive yourself for not being this perfect person that wakes up at five o'clock in the morning, goes for a jog, writes for the first two hours, then goes to work. And then somehow has the energy to continue writing afterwards and then reaching out to 10 different people to network for uh, a film opportunity. Like nobody's perfect. Right. So just recognizing that, like, if you can do that one little thing every day, like that's great. Or having like big goals in mind, like having that first draft completed by the end of the year. I like big goals because then you don't beat yourself up for not doing the small daily goals to get there. If that makes any sense. Like, Mm. I don't know to me, like, that's just the way I work. So, and some people might be the complete opposite. Some people like having day to day. And that's why I really said what works for you and really discovering what that is. Because if you're trying to do what works for someone else and it's not working, then you blame yourself and you beat yourself up and then you're not creating and you're not being productive and you're not being created. And like, that's not good for anybody. So figuring out what it is that makes you able to create art on a regular basis or not regular. I don't know. I don't know if I'm just. Yeah. Yeah. I would say create art on a regular basis. I do think having your hands in the paint is Mm -hmm. important. I have had to do work on like forgiving myself and not beating myself up to be like, Oh, I've been so focused on business that I haven't been the writer that I am. You know, I used to torture my boyfriend, Tyler with being like, Tyler, you don't know. Cause you haven't seen it in the year we've been dating, but like, I'm a writer. And he'd be like, okay, babe, I believe you. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. Yeah. Like, I am a writer. Mm-hmm. Like I'm good at writing. He'd be like, okay, great. Go write. And I'm like, <laughs> pass the popcorn and yeah. play the next episode of the Netflix show. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have to actually Mm. Uh, don't worry about the gatekeepers right in Hollywood the publishing industry whatever uh that that's who says you are an actor or that's who says you are a playwright or that's who says you are a writer um what makes one an actor is performing even if it's a tiny production in your town of 2,000 people you Mm. are an actor what makes you a writer is actually taking the time to take the poem that's whispering in your spirit and get it down on paper, I would go one step further and say, and sharing that with one other human that does not live in your home or more. Um, There are so many things that people, beautiful work that people don't show anyone uh, that's languishing at the bottom of drawers because they're perfectionist um, or they're heartbroken that they can't get a traditional book deal. So they're like, so I'll, so no one will read it. But anyway, all that is to say is I do think the doing is important um, as a creative person, not just the like having it in your heart. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it is a challenge to balance the time. But, you know, I'm not saying write every day, but we don't want to go three years and realize the only thing we've written are like feedback forms Mm -hmm. to our coworkers or whatever. So, yeah, I'm I'm super excited about my kind of renaissance or whatever of being recommitted to to writing and storytelling and that's why in our one-on-ones I'm so like 
make sure you stay yeah. committed. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. okay. Well, I'm pumped with this call. So I'll make sure to, after this, start working on a script that I have been postponing. So that's good. And actually part of like that idea of like having friends that you can talk to or someone that can get you excited because sometimes you are tired and sometimes you just need a conversation to energize you. And I completely, completely agree with you, like sharing it out to the world. Cause especially for writers, like you can have a whole drawer full of poems or scripts or screenplays and then no one sees it because it's it's vulnerable and scary to share it out to the world. Um, but I do do development. So if anyone wants to submit a script, we can talk about that in a minute, but I'm more than happy to get feedback. But this idea of like, it is really important to kind of get, open yourself up for that feedback because that's how you're going to grow, especially when it comes to writing. Because like, you know yourself from reading so many application essays, like what you think might be a perfect grad school essay. You can talk about mine if you want an example of a not perfect grad school essay um, before I started working with the art of applying, but you, you just had to open yourself up to the feedback and it's scary, but it's so rewarding because you're going to be so happy with the final product and you can actually have a career once you get the script where it needs to be. Mm, beautiful. So you mentioned that you do script development and you also mentioned how important it is to have mentors and to have friends who you can talk to about these things. I completely agree for like, my second book, I'm in a course. Um, I'm not going to name the course until I go through the course to just make sure I don't endorse something that doesn't end up being amazing. I think it will end up being amazing because I'm going to do my best in the course so that I'll have peers and I'll have a mentor and I'll have guides, uh, not to tell me how to write, but to just cheer me on and to like, give me a framework for like the course begins this date it ends this date. Um, so that I actually have some momentum and uh, I would love for you to share uh, more about where people who are watching this or listening to this interview can find you, how they can work with you, um, how you can help. Yeah. So if you go to alexarsather.com, which is difficult to spell, but I'm sure in the show notes, it'll be in the, the show notes. Uh, it'll be like, skill your joy with guest Alex Arsather. And then you can just learn how to spell it from there. I myself have misspelled it a couple of times, so don't worry about it. Uh, but alexarsather.com, there's a contact page. Just shoot me an email there and we can kind of discuss like, you know, to me, like in terms of like the total cost, it would just depend on how long of a script it is. You know, features take a lot more work than a 10 page short. But yeah, if you would like my feedback, I've been doing script coverage now for the last four years. And I just really, really, I mean, even with a scale your joy, uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to provide you some feedback for every episode. So I yes. love, so I don't know if you want to be my testimonial of my feedback for you, but I, oh, I, absolutely. I can do a pretty long Let feedback. me know what, what, how I can help. I'm happy to provide a testimonial for the Ooh. awesome feedback you gave um, for season one of scale your joy. Very happy to do that. Oh, fantastic. But yeah, that's where you can find me. Or if you just kind of want to connect, you can also just shoot me an email there. But that's where that's where I live on the internet. <laughs> I love it. Well, this has been a ton of fun, Alexei. I am so honored and grateful to have been able to work with you uh, for a year. And I'm so excited and proud of you for going off to your dream school of Oxford. I cannot wait to be very scared of all the horror and similar type shows you get greenlit on whatever streaming service is so lucky to have you one day. And I'm just thrilled for you. I think you provided some really beautiful insights for businessy people who might be a little bit curiosity, uh, creatively curious, as well as for creative people who might be business curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, left left side, right brain, right? Uh, there's the two sides in every person, right? 
Uh, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have my podcast debut with you. I, I'm someone who really believes in first, so I really am so happy that it's got to be my first podcast of hopefully many to come. <laughs> oh, definitely. You're an awesome guest. You will be on many, many podcasts to come. Thank you. <laughs> Loved what you heard in this episode? Then you've got to join the Scale Your Joy review crew. It's my community of followers and friends who have left a review on Apple Podcasts. Every quarter, I host a two-hour Ask Me Anything coaching call for review crew members only. Come to scaleyourjoy.com to learn how to join the review crew and get more tools for charting your own path and scaling joy.